Hey everyone, and welcome to The Scientist Podcast. Today, our guest is a remarkable researcher and physician, and a man who has made an immense contribution to a number of fields. He's been cited more than 270,000 times, he founded the Scripps Translational Institute, and in 2018 he led the NHS's review into AI and future tech. He was recently awarded $207 million as a grant to lead the Precision Medicine Initiative, and he's even found time to write three bestsellers and be awarded the title of Rockstar Scientist by GQ. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Eric Topol. Dr. Topol, thanks so much for being here. Oh, Jamie, good to be with you. Thank you. I have to ask about the GQ Rockstar Scientist. Did you know that you were awarded that? Did you remember being awarded that? Uh, well, I remember getting the phone call about it, and I thought it was a prank. I, I thought it was a scam. I didn't know they had such a thing. Uh, but it actually turned out to be a fun uh, event because uh, what they did was uh, GQ recruited some celebrities, uh, and uh, I, I was with Seal, uh, who at the time was married to Heidi Klum. And it was a really interesting event because um, they were trying to use the celebrity status of rock stars to promote science, which is a nice thing because... You know, science doesn't usually get that type of uh, support. Uh, so I think I thought it turned out to be a, a nice thing and they kept it up for a few years. I don't know if it's still going. I mean, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Before we jump in, though, I'd love if you could sort of give an outline of your career as you see it and sort of describe how you got interested in the particular areas you got interested in. Well, the real basic uh, kind of fundamental thing was that I was really interested in genetics uh, and in back in college, uh, where I went to University of Virginia. And I actually thought um, that would be what I do in my life is just work in genetics. Um, you know, I even wrote a thesis in college about prospects for gene therapy in man. So I was trying to think ahead. I, I had no idea it would take 40 years to get to gene therapy. Uh, <laughs> but at any rate, um, uh, what happened then was uh, I had to work uh, at night to help pay for uh, things in college. And I turned out I got a job in a hospital uh, and I got exposed to patients and that said, well, I better go to medical school. So that's basically what happened. Mm -hmm. And I eventually got back to genetics and then, um, you know, I, I became a cardiologist and basically fast forward uh, when I came, when I came out to San Diego in 06, uh, it was to start a, what I thought was going to be a genetics genomics Institute, but as it turned out, San Diego is the hub of wireless medicine. So we, we added that dimension of sensors, smartphone medicine, and we basically became a hub for individualized medicine, which is something, you know, that goes back to the genetic roots uh, of what I've been interested in. Yeah, it's interesting that you landed upon your eventual interests and that it came back round in the way that it did. Um, I want to talk to you about personalized medicine and individualized medicine. How would you characterize those for someone who doesn't know what they are? Well, it's the recognition that uh, each of us are truly unique. Uh, even identical twins have critical mm. differences in their makeup, no less their environment. And so if we cue into that, which we can now, we can define each person at, at multiple uh, levels of uh, uh, data and information. If we do that, we can make medicine so much smarter, more accurate, less waste, uh, more effective. So I think that's where we're headed. Uh, we've seen some uh, examples of you know, how that can begin. It's still in the early phases though. Uh, much more work that needs to be done. But you know, for example, in cancer now that we can sequence uh, a tumor or the, uh, the, what's in the blood, the plasma from the cancer, mm -hmm. to be able to fashion a therapy for that particular person because every cancer is unique. 
that's already one of many pieces of evidence that we can do much better in treating uh, people. And that'll eventually uh, be seen in all aspects of medicine. What are the scientific challenges moving from where we are already with personalized medicine to going sort of where we'd ideally like to be? Well, the biggest challenge is really the validation, you know, the proof that you can do it, that you can do it without increasing costs. You know, it helps people and that takes time. I mean, first you have to have the, the willing to do the studies. <laughs> then you have to have the people who, after you publish them uh, and they've been through, you know, the real review process to accept it and to change. One of the toughest features, Jamie, is changing things in medicine. It's mm. very ritualistic, sclerotic, ossified in many ways. And to effect a change, you know, I've been uh, a practicing physician for, you know, 35 years now. And uh, it's hard to get changes uh, to occur. And when they do occur, they usually take quite a bit of time. I guess it's an interesting challenge though, after however many decades in medicine, to be really sort of pushing change in a way that's immensely difficult. The role of the Scripps Translational Institute, that was set up for what specific purpose? Was it to sort of drive the personalized medicine? Yes, it was. Uh, so back when I came end of 06, it was basically there was no genomics genetics Institute in San Diego, which is very rich in life science. So that was the initial goal. And basically to set up that whole plan is to take genetics and make that a better for better medicine. But we quickly became aware that that's only one level of the story, you know, just having somebody's mm -hmm. genome sequence and that you really need a lot more information. So just when uh, in, you may recall in 2000, when the, the code was broken and there was this mission accomplished sense, uh, it was became clear by, you know, a few years later that that wasn't going to be enough. The DNA decoding was not going to be enough. So basically we were the first academic uh, institute uh, center to embrace digital medicine uh, and incorporate and integrate that with genetics. So of course others have followed now and digital medicine is getting you know, more credibility and support over time. But back in the beginning of 07, it was a, a, a kind of a special eureka moment, uh, Jamie. Uh, I went to this conference uh, early that year. Uh, it was put together by Qualcomm, you know, wireless, uh, uh, IT company, information tech company. And um, they were talking about, you may recall, there was no smartphone then. Um, there was right. uh, some rudimentary things, but there was no internet connected smartphone. And this fellow went into the front of the room and was talking about, we should have a smartphone with a camera. And everybody was you know, saying, we don't need that. That's ridiculous. Why would we want a camera? Uh, because they said we have pocket cameras that are really, you know, uh, point and click and your camera and a phone. That's so dumb. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, we had an Internet connected with a camera connected to. And I just started thinking this is the dawn of digital medicine, because, you know, it, in, the, in the simplest way, you could take a picture of a skin rash, let's say. Sure. But that, that, that's a sensor. A camera is a sensor. But what if you could do other things with sensors? So that was the beginning why we became a digital medicine center. Uh, and so now we are, I think, the only one that basically pushes on both these major areas of genomics and digital. So the game is basically to try and move medicine into a new paradigm, the paradigm where we utilize the technology that we have. 
Um, do you see that accelerating at the same pace as technology accelerates when we kind of get increasingly fancy iPhones? Should we expect to see a equivalent move in the progress of medicine? Uh, I hope so. There's a <laughs> lag, though. Um, you know, there's a significant, much more of a lag than I would hope there would be. Because right now we have so many, um, you know, profound errors and waste and, you know, so many things that are just uh, not up to par. Plus, we've seen terrible erosion of the patient doctor, patient clinician relationship, which we need to get back because there's a global crisis of burnout, which has probably been worsened by the pandemic. So there's lots of things that we have to do quickly rather than wait 17 years before something gets fixed. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I want to talk to you about the burnout and the decline of the patient's uh, relationship with the doctor. I've seen you say that in some ways that can be accounted for by the transition from paper to electronic health records. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, the biggest problem is that when electronic health records were introduced, they were really done for business purposes, mm. uh, for billing in the U.S., and they, they, was, they didn't give a hoot about, you know, was it going to help the care of patients and uh, the use uh, by clinicians. So the problem became quickly that uh, the doctors and nurses and all the people on the front lines of healthcare, they became data clerks. Instead of connecting with patients, they were actually, their back was to patients while they were typing, pecking away and looking at screens. And it's just been abysmal. And the problem has been is that um, the, the uh, uh, disenchantment in medicine, that's just one feature, but it's such a symbolic one because you, people who go into healthcare, it's because they want to care for people. And this has basically prevented that. It takes mm. them away from it. So uh, it's been one of many things that have occurred that uh, have interfered and disrupted the, the, what the, es the essential feature of medicine, which is the bond between a patient and the person uh, providing care for that patient. There's a couple of remarkable things that come out of that. The first is it's remarkable, having not known that, that initially electronic health records were a billing mechanism. They weren't uh, for efficiency or to have all the patient's data in one place. That's something else that you talk about, right? That our health data is something that we don't have as much of control over as we might want. Yeah, I think this is really pathetic. And if you were to say my list of frustrations, this might be number mm. one. Mm. The fact that patients are treated at some lower level. I mean, we're all patients at some point and we can't even get our data. And if you do get it, you have to grovel and work at it. And, and no one essentially, at least in the U.S., it, it's certainly different in other countries. Uh, there are some exceptions, but you, it's hard to get all your data. But if, if it was done properly, you would be at the center. And anytime you had a, a medical interaction from the time you were in the womb to the time of today, this moment, those would be in your domain, the, you, you, your property, and you could share it uh, and you could uh, how much, you know, when, with whom, it would be under your control. That would be the ideal scenario. And, you know, except for Estonia and a few places around the world who have achieved that ideal uh, goal, uh, we're so far away from it. And why is that important? Well, there's lots of waste in medicine just because you can't get the patient's scan or data. Hmm. Uh, they, they, they order it again. 10% of scans in the United States are done because they can't get a hold of the one that was recently done. I mean, that's incredible to me. 
that's billions of dollars of waste, but it's much more than that. It's a sense of that patients are, uh, have to be dependent. And added to this is the fact that now we have sensors, we have genomics, we're getting gut microbiome data, environmental data, and none of that is in the electronic health record. So there's no home for that. And so that's what we need to do is create a place where all your data is there and organized and there's algorithms to organize it and to process it and help you. And that hopefully will be the case over time. Is there a, is there a case for optimism in as far as, as electronic medicine progresses, we'll just simply require more personalized data and therefore we'll have to go to an Estonian model of centralized single records for each individual. I, I agree with you, Jim. I think this is unavoidable. Once data became eminently portable in the digital world, mm. this, this is a natural uh, uh, path. Uh, and we have, as you say, there are places where it already is working really well on a secure, hyper-secure platform where there's been no known breaches of that, which is a concern people have. But when people start to own their data and direct its flow of what they want to send to this person or that person when, that is another level of engagement. That is another level of taking medicine. You know, that's individualized medicine has a double entendre. One is that we learn as much as possible about a person in their medical health mm-hmm. essence. The other is that that person is driving it. And you can't drive it if you don't have the data. Right, so taking the technology slightly further, I'd like to talk a little bit about AI and its role in medicine. You've spoken about how, at the moment, AI is pretty good at what you're calling narrow tasks. Um, What are narrow tasks and what's the gap between sort of its current level of attainability and what we might hope happens? Right, so the real task that AI does well is images. And in some ways, complementary to people and experts, it can find things and see things in images that would be missed when it's trained, uh, when the machines are trained properly. So what we've seen in medicine is wherever there's an image from a retinal scan to a, a X-ray to uh, you know an MRI, whatever it is, you can get uh, amazing interpretation by machine algorithms trained with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these scans. So that when it is presented to a, a doctor, that it's, it's basically helped to find things that might've been missed. And so it, the, the two together, the machine and the, the medical person, that's the sum of uh, a parts that is just terrific. And instead of that, unfortunately, it's kind of like when Gary Kaz, Gaspar, Kasparov would uh, play big blue in chess where it was man against machine. We don't want that. We want to have the, the, the hybrid, you know, the hybridization, the combination, the synergy of those. So that's what we're seeing is the sweet spot for AI right now. And the hope is that that will grow into more features and capabilities over time. Yeah, it's fascinating. The natural follow-up question, which you've just answered is, well, in a world where AI is doing more of the heavy lifting, what is the role of kind of the 2050 doctor? But the way you've sort of explained it sounds as if, well, you're suddenly going to have doctors who are equally important, but they'll just be tooled up to get diagnoses yeah. more right more of the time. Yeah, exactly. They, they will be uh, in many ways performing uh, tasks that they want to do. They don't even see as tasks, which is interacting with people. And they get help, machine support to make that uh, far more uh, 
capable of, of doing what they want to do to provide care, not to uh, get stuck in, uh, you know, typing on a keyboard. Keyboard should be liberated. If we don't get that done by 2050, we're really doing something wrong. That should be done by 2030, by 2025. Um, but, you know, I think over time we will see, um, you know, a autonomy of patients. Not all patients, but most will have much more charge. They'll have algorithmic support for lots of things that are common. We already see that with urinary tract infections and skin uh, problems and ear infections in children and heart rhythm problems. And we're, the list is going to keep growing. So Dr. Less uh, for non-serious matters, where you then get the patients generating their own data, having algorithms to help interpret, that also decompresses the workload of clinicians. So between these different forces, we'll, we'll get to the heart of medicine, which is uh, the real uh, bond, the empathy, the, the deep uh, connection that has been really eroding over time. Yeah, it's not hard to see how as technology becomes more and more complex, doctors become desk clerks and it removes and erodes in some way the relationship between doctor and patient. Um, as we're talking about medicine sort of holistically in the United States, I'm interested in your view on sort of equality and equity in healthcare outcomes. I have this vague idea that the more income inequality you see or wealth inequality you see, healthcare outcomes are going to divide along similar lines. Is that a misplaced thought or does the evidence back that up? Well, I mean, I think uh, the, the, the pandemic was kind of the acid test for inequities. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen, we've seen is, you know, the U.S. is uh, probably the worst performing developed country in the world because it has such glaring, you know, profound inequities. Uh, when I was able to be involved with the NHS and um, uh, do the review, uh, it was an exceptional opportunity for me to be kind of in the middle of a system that gets, does whatever it can to provide health care for all. And uh, whereas... Um, it had its problems in the UK for the pandemic. I don't think uh, it's as profound uh, in terms of the adverse outcomes as what we're seeing, certainly not at scale uh, as in the US. So, you know, I think this uh, issue of inequities, the hope is that AI can, it could make it worse, but it could also make it better. So let me just give you a quick example. One of my favorite uh, technologies is smartphone ultrasound, where you can take a probe and pop it into the base of a smartphone and you're good to go with amazing imaging. Well, that can be done now anywhere. Um, and what's great about it is it's, we're now seeing AI algorithms that take an uninitiated person. So if you've never done a smartphone ultrasound, you just have it in your hand and you put it on a person's body, yourself or someone else, it will tell you how to you know, basically move the probe this way or that way, up or down. And as soon as you capture the right image, whatever it is, it will take it'll uh, it'll automatically um, take a video loop, and then of course that can be interpreted with either algorithms or expert input. So we're going to a point now where inequities with these cheap Moore's law, you know, type software. I mean, things that are that are really inexpensive and can be widely distributed. They could help reduce the inequities we see now, but it does also uh, count count on having universal care for everyone. And we are definitely short on that here in America. Yeah, I mean, that is sort of the ultimate instance of democratizing healthcare. 
having a sort of anyone can use a piece of technology, which you can then go, presuming that you have universal coverage, to a doctor yeah. with. Um, yeah, I, I can say for sure that 2050 people will be imaging themselves like never before uh, and well before then. <laughs> you know, the idea that if, if when I say to people, well, smartphone ultrasound is for anyone, when you make those probes and they're really inexpensive and get high resolution images, they'll be good to, for, for anyone to use uh, in the future and will forego these expensive scans that occur in clinics and hospitals. So, um, you know, the, the, the downside is, will it bring up incidental findings? Will it increase anxiety? We'll have to deal with that. We'll have to figure out the ways to get it out there to the right person for the right uh, indication. But that's an exciting path of the future that few people don't talk about, are talking about. Yeah, I mean, that sort of feels like it would be a revolutionary step to healthcare. Um, and then as far as you do get incidental findings or anxiety, those feel like marginal issues in the context of democratizing healthcare. Um, sort of in, you mentioned your work with the UK and the NHS. Can you talk a little bit about what that work was and if there was anything about the NHS that surprised you? Obviously you've worked in the States for decades, but now we're sort of on the cutting edge of changing the NHS. Well, that was maybe the most uh, uh, fulfilling and exciting experience I think I've had in, in my career in, in medicine. And the reason was I, I kind of went in there with maybe, uh, you know, a negative view because of how the U.S. takes on UK medicine so much. And I, I learned, well, I knew, of course, that genomics, uh, it was the worldwide leader. There's no place that done more to advance genomics. Um, but what I didn't know when I got to work with a, a team of almost 50 people from every discipline, um, the people were all volunteering. They all wanted to do what's right for the, the, uh, the not only the, the citizens of the U.K., but to be a leader in the world to help people throughout the world. And I got in touch with a different um, kind of mindset. Um, expertise that was so deep, so exceptional, and commitment and um, a, uh, a spirit that really was, uh, you know, just phenomenal. So I was really moved by it. And it became, you know, I was sorry when it ended. Uh, because I really enjoyed it. And I've made a lot of new friends from that experience, people I didn't know. And we got into AI and genomics more and uh, digital medicine. And we also came as a consensus that the missing link was the patient interface. That is that relationship, which we need to get back. So we all kind of worked on this together, had lots of, we were reading weekly. Uh, and, and of course, you know, for me, it was early in the morning. It was late in the evening for the folks there. And we everyone worked really hard to nail this down. And I think we charted a course together that is the right one for, for every, everywhere. Uh, but, you know, I think that the UK, even with the pandemic and even with the challenges of a change in government and Brexit and all this other stuff, they've still been committed to the plan. And, you know, I, 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 I'm thrilled about that. And I get constant, you know, feedback as to how things are moving and the digital health fellows and so many things that are inspiring to me. I wish we had anything like that here. The research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated and animated leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. 
If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. Can you talk a little bit more about what that path is from sort of the point that you left to sort of where we're at now and where we're going? Well, I think the idea is that we're getting more and more data flooded. Uh, you know, each, it's not just big data, it's big data per person. And we need to come up with ways to take that data and, you know, I call it the virtual uh, medical coach, uh, mm. whereby your, all your data is continuously processed and given back to you for feedback. And, you know, we, that w- we can't do that now with what we have as far as deep learning. We need hybrid models and new models to do this. But ultimately, just like you might get um, assistance for going somewhere or keeping up with your calendar, more important is preventing a health condition that you otherwise would be pre- predisposed to or getting far better management of a condition that you already have. And I do think we're going to get there. Um, and that's what is going to be an outgrowth of this data rich time. But we, we can't do it unless we're committed to um, advancing AI. AI at the moment is just not ready for that, but it will be. Right. So AI is sort of the limiting factor as, as far as we are now. Well, that in the mindset, you know, that uh, why would doctors are don't like to relinquish control. Mm. So the idea that an algorithm would be built for each person to keep, to, you know, uh, grab all the medical literature relevant to that person, have all their data of every different level and continually update and advise them, that doesn't go well with doctors. However, what they might realize is it's going to make their lives easier too, because that data can be shared with them and it's going to process. See, this is something that most people don't acknowledge is that we can't, you know, humans have a lot of great qualities, but we can't deal with massive data sets. That's not one of our mm. capabilities. Even so, even though some humans think they can, they can't. So that's where if we if we really rely on machines, deep neural networks, new models, AI, we'll get there. Yeah, it's interesting in one way that it meets resistance, because clearly doctors, if you were to ask me, I would say are the most data-driven or hopefully the most data-driven scientific method-based kind of people around. But equally, you know, we sort of have this almost inbuilt suspicion of tech doing our jobs. If you look at the reaction and the feedback that uh, politicians got in the UK when it was suggested the trains, the underground would be automatically run, you know, there was an immense level of backlash. So you just need to extrapolate that to computers will be making your medical decisions to sort of get a sense of what the kinds of backlash um, or resistance might be. Um, speaking just briefly about the UK and the US, there are obviously a number of different funding models for public healthcare systems. Um, we have sort of the UK model, the US model, and this sort of European social insurance model. Um, can I ask what you think, how you sort of go about thinking about what the better or more equitable ways of funding medicine is? Well, I think if everyone has, um, you know, this egalitarian approach, which was another thing I learned from the time I spent uh, with NHS and that people regard it as up there with the Royal family and the BBC are, you know, the most highly respected because of its uh, equanimity and egalitarian features, which we are so far away from here. So I think if you provide the most care, you know, the people I talk to, you know, I would ask people, you know, cab drivers, people I just ran into, what do you think of the healthcare? They say, 
it's great. I mean, I may have to wait, but when I finally get looked after, I feel very good about it. And you don't get that here. I can. <laughs> so um, whatever is being done is, is a good step. Um, you know, I think that you'd like to get the best care for everyone. And that I think is going to be what we've been talking about. That is we need help. Everyone's stretched. And the, the reason I was involved initially with Jeremy Hunt and then later with Matt Hancock to do the review was because we have limitations in the workforce. And the problem we have right now is in the U.S., you know, all the new jobs that are basically not all, but the biggest proportion keep putting in more jobs in healthcare, more jobs. And the same to some extent is happening around the world and in the U.K. We just can't keep doing that. We need to have less human capital you know, relying and more to, you know, get the help that is needed. So I, I think that it's not just funding the healthcare system. It's funding the workaround plan, because if we just keep hiring more people, uh, we're going to, we're basically, everyone will go bankrupt globally to try to uh, support healthcare. So there's better ways to do this. And, and I think that was an important part. So here's another example. Why do we need hospitals? I mean, Really, you need an intensive care unit, an operating room, emergency room, but the rest of the hospital should be at the patient's home. Just think about the savings that that could. Uh, so rather than thinking about, you know, uh, the way you were asking, I think of it very differently. I think of gutting resources that are unhelpful, that are waste, and making things more uh, ideal for patients to be in their own bedroom, in their own home, instead of being in a hospital where, you know, unfortunately, it's not just expensive, but bad things can happen in hospitals. Yeah, it's a fascinating answer because it's sort of taking the question of how do you best fund a healthcare system and saying, really, you just redo the healthcare system, democratize it and make it inexpensive. So it's not a question of how do we raise the tax dollars for this? It's, well, right. let's lower the barriers to entry and lower how much federal funding is required in the first instance. Yeah, I mean, there's just uh, immense savings. I mean, like, for example, so much of in the U.S. especially is administrative costs where all these people that go around coding things for, you know, how much they, money they can get for reimbursement and back office people. And I mean, you have all these managers and administrators. Most of them are doing nothing of value for patients. So we have this misplaced uh, emphasis on things that are not relevant. And so if you just look in the U.S., uh, it's thought that at least a trillion dollars a year, one third of the budget. 1.2 trillion could be gutted and there wouldn't be any change in the healthcare of patients. <laughs> so, you know, that just gives you a sense of where things are at right now. We need a reboot, restart, and uh, a much more parsimonious way of, of doling out uh, for personnel and facilities that are unwarranted. Why is it then that, you know, the debates will run on Obamacare or later universal care? And you don't have many people, especially not sort of on the more enterprising end of the political spectrum, sort of speaking about this. Well, we should be. I mean, that's a you know, you know, it's our glaring deficit here. Um, but I think it's bigger than that. What we have in the U.S. is um, uh, in inherent conflicts. So, for example, one of the leading uh, lobbying groups for the government is the American Hospital Association. So when you bring up the idea that we're going to gut hospitals, yeah, that doesn't go over too well. Okay. So what we have is, you know, we are so business centric in, in providing it's not, you know, it, it isn't really healthcare. It's business care. You know, there's no care. It's just business. 
So we have to basically get over that. And uh, we can't let the uh, entities lobby the government for their financial benefits. And it isn't just hospitals. I mean, there's, there's physician organizations that do this. And, you know, it's across the board. It's a significant problem. So we have to get over that hump in order if we're ever going to get things fixed. Yeah, I'm, I'm energized sort of just hearing you sort of talk about this. It's a really, it's a really sort of disruptive and inspiring vision of the future of medicine. Um, I had an experience in the United States with a friend who had glandular fever. Um, his spleen was expanding, an ambulance came, and they sort of looked at him in the ambulance and said, you need to go to hospital. Um, and his response was to call an Uber. And I thought, sort of, I was baffled. I thought, what are you doing? Wow. Let's, let's wow. go. Um, and he was sort of in too much pain and too confused to give the slightly bewildered Brit an explanation for why he was on the Uber app. But it made total sense the next day. Well, it would have cost X hundred, X thousand dollars to go a mile and a half. And much better to leave the care of the medical facility uh, for that journey and save yourself a fortune. So, right. yeah, so it's a fascinating thing. Just to tie this back into something we mentioned briefly, which is COVID, what mistakes do you perceive have been made in the United States? Oh, the list is enormous. Uh, the biggest one is not having testing capabilities for the first couple of months. So we had no tests that is at any scale. And so the, basically when the virus, you know, beached in, uh, whether it was in uh, the West Coast or then later, uh, shortly later in the East Coast, uh, there was no testing so that it was just getting diffused everywhere. So by the time in March, you know, several weeks later, uh, when testing started, just started to ramp up, it's still not right. Here it is, it's October. But um, <laughs> we, we just were so far behind. And basically, that's the last, you know, like rule number one, don't get behind in a, in a pandemic. And then you basically are in such a deep hole, you can't ever dig your way out. We right now still 40,000 new infections a day, um, because we've never gotten control or containment. So like so many other countries that have done, you know, exemplary in that respect, some have gotten almost eradication, but many have had sustained containment. Uh, and, you know, we've never had it. Uh, and so the mistakes were first, no testing, then it was stupidity. Okay, we're going to open up the country, even though we don't have containment. And oh, we're going to open up all the businesses, we're going to open up the schools, we're going to open up, and it was just basically denial of, of what was going to happen and they all everything happened everything that was predicted happened so we have gotten into such a total mess and a lot of it is because science hasn't been allowed to pre prevail to to lead it's been political and it's been by an anti-science um, force which is more than discouraging were you surprised by the politicization of mask wearing vaccinations etc have you run into this before over your career i've never seen it I mean, I've never, you know, I tried to think back, when was anything ever politicized? Uh, I only can think of a couple of examples. Uh, you know, during the Bush uh, administration, stem cells were politicized. And uh, during the Obama administration, uh, there was uh, the morning after pill for um, uh, contraception. Um, um, but those were, you know, few and far between in the last decades that I can remember. This has been every inch of the way, every step has been politicized. Now we have the vaccines that are getting politicized. Um, you know, we had convalescent plasma, we had hydroxychloroquine, masks, uh, 
everything, everything has been politicized. It's just a tragedy because when we go and look back at this time, this dreadful phase uh, of the US, we're gonna realize that if, it, if politics stepped away and let us do the evidence-based things, we would have done you know, extremely well. And part of that evidence base is having a test that you're not flying blind. And, and that was the singular worst mistake to, to start things off. Yeah, you've spoken about rapid tests, sort of at-home rapid tests, which actually, given that we've been speaking in the way that we have, doesn't seem dissimilar to kind of the advantages of democratizing medicine anyway. Um, right. Where are we with those kinds of tests? Well, that is the way it should be democratized. It should be in your home. It should be you have a whole bunch of these paper tests or, you know, it could be uh, a liquid test. But basically, it takes 20 minutes. You do it yourself and you're about to go to work or school or wherever you're going. And you do this test and then it's authenticated on your phone that you're you're uh, it, you're not infectious. And that is a high viral load. Uh, and uh, you're that you're good for the day. And if we did that, we would have, you know, I think I believe terrific control. It has to be proven because, you know, we the cutoff for the viral load, um, which is really the, to, the today's tests, as you know, are testing whether you have any viral copies in your notes. You know, they're basically, if you have a, a very low level, you'll be get a positive test. That's not what is of interest because those people are not infectious. They're just infected. So if we have these rapid tests that are cheap, uh, you know, and, and are, you can do them every day, um, then we're good to go. And I, I think that's going to be the, the thing that's good, along with masks, along with better treatments and ultimately vaccines, that's what will get us back to where we were pre-COVID. In terms of viral loads, where are we with knowing how much of a viral load someone needs to be infectious? Yeah, so in the PCR test, there's a thing called cycle threshold, CT. And the lower you are, the more viral load. And we know that if you're, uh, you know, this cutoff around 25 is where we think is going to be the, the, the cutoff for infectious. Um, and so that has to be proven. That can be done quickly. But the point is, is that, no one gets that data on their PCR test. You know, if you ever had a test, bad enough to have to have the test, but then you have this count uh, and you don't even know it. So, um, you know, I think we have a pretty good idea where that threshold is for infectious. And it doesn't mean that people would just go out and, you know, not use masks and not use when they can physical distancing, but it will be a very good uh, means of knowing the likelihood it's not definite, but the likelihood that someone uh, could be a carrier uh, for the virus. And could, could you make the case for optimism here? Is it possible to say, well, testing is that kind of test is being developed. We are seeing masks being used more regularly. Is it possible to make that kind of a case? A absolutely. There, there's a test that's been ready to go since April, I learned yesterday. One of these, you know, there's about 50 different companies that are making these home tests. Uh, and one of them was ready to go in April, but they can't get the FDA to approve them because the FDA doesn't like the idea of democratizing home tests and they haven't approved any home test. And that's the wrong idea. So I'm going to have a talk with the FDA commissioner. We have a, a interview next week and I'm going to be asking him, get the home test approved because he's, he's, he's aware that they're going to be important, but there's been unwillingness to 
put together the criteria, the path for regulatory approval. We need that badly. We've needed it since April. And you know now many tests would be ready to go, not just here, but around the world. It's unbelievable to me that it's regulatory barriers that have stopped a test like that, which clearly would give a great level of control from going ahead. I mean, if you think yeah, about the- that, 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 another point on that is it's really the choke point or rate limiting step because these companies can't make uh, millions of their paper tests, pregnancy tests, until they get funding. They're startups largely, and they can't get funding if they can't get regulatory approval. So it's this catch 22 where they're basically sitting in a parking lot and they can't even start the ignition of the car because they basically, there's no road to go on uh, and they can't afford to buy gas, you know, <laughs> or, or electricity. <laughs> yeah. And there's this horrible irony in which the current administration seems quite happy to override normal procedures and use executive powers in other ways and more political ways, but not to get these tests off the ground. I wanted to ask you on a totally different topic about the cardiovascular gene bank. Now, when I was reading about this, I was fascinated by the premise. I mean, so you started, if I'm correct in saying, the first cardiovascular gene bank in 96. Can you tell me what a cardiovascular gene bank is and what it does? Right. Well, that one was to get 10,000 people in it. So in today's world, that would be considered very modest. But at the time, it was, whoa. And so basically, you know, everyone that would come to have a cardiac uh, catheterization, they have to have, um, you know, a catheter uh, put into their artery, uh, vein, uh, anyway. So what we did would we would ask them if they would donate a tube of blood so we could get DNA. And so then we had all their medical information. We all had their follow up because we when I was then at Cleveland Clinic, we were following everyone uh, as to what happened. So we had these 10,000 people that we had eventually uh, their uh, genetics, their sequence of their genome, their, uh, you know, so much of their medical data. And so it was at the time uh, an important uh, project or initiative because nothing had been done in that way. Uh, it has turned out to be fruitful because over time, our capabilities of analyzing that data and knowing what's in the genome has just gotten better and better. So, you know, we've made a lot of discoveries through that effort. And, and now, of course, that's blossomed everywhere. And that's tiny comparison to, for example, the UK Biobank, which has, you know, orders of magnitude, more people. And every day there's another paper being published from the UK Biobank. It's leading the world in terms of knowledge, new knowledge derived from genomics. So, you know, I look back in 96, that, that was a, you know, tiny uh, project, but fortunately it was early. Yeah, there must be a real satisfaction about sort of planting. I mean, a seed might be underselling it. It was 10,000 people that you were tracking. But nonetheless, planting a seed that then leads to some level of medical advancement. So yeah, in some ways, you know, we have a million person pro program right now that, you know, all of us, which is a precision medicine initiative, which is kind of like that. You know, we're getting uh, samples and we're getting all the medical data and prospectively following them forever, you know, for decades ahead. So we're now doing that at scale. And one thing I can say to proud, proud about it is more than half the people are uh, people of color, underrepresented minorities. Mm -hmm. So there hasn't been a program like that yet uh, worldwide that's done so well in getting a real cross-section of people. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's nice to be part of that. It's got so many years behind the efforts your way, uh, but at least it's moving in that direction. We've got about 350,000 
participants right now. When you look at your career and sort of the range and scope of things that you've done, is there something that stands out as particularly meaningful? Sort of an area of research that you can look at and think, God, the process of doing that research or where that left medicine compared to where we started sort of strikes you home as the most meaningful or one of the most meaningful things that you've done? Well, I think it goes back to what we discussed, which was the idea that um, we're not genome centric, that we need other layers of data and to integrate sensors in the digital uh, features uh, of a person's makeup, um, their environment now with sensors, um, you know, the physiology through sensors, the anatomy through sensors and scans. So that idea, that concept is, you know, I think was the critical one that differentiated our efforts. And, you know, if I were to say, you know, what was the, the contribution that I'm proud of, it would be that. Um, I also would just point out that, you know, I never thought I would write a book in my, for, the, for lay people. I wrote a lot of textbooks and edited textbooks. But I think those were actually really quite important because then I started communicating with a different, um, uh, broader uh, group of people. And uh, I've tried to get my, uh, my faculty, my uh, trainees to also think like that, to, to never uh, think of who you're writing for as your colleagues, but rather that you should be, you know, getting it down to uh, an elemental level that everyone can understand and ideally talk to the public and, you know, share everything you can. Uh, so that's another part of what I've learned. I wish I'd learned it sooner. Um, but, you know, it's something that I, uh, I'm really glad I eventually got into. Yeah, it sounds like sort of you have a clear philosophy with your approach to medicine, which is effectively, A, as far as I can tell, reestablish the dynamic and the relationship between the patient and the doctor. B, democratize everything so that it's more yeah. accessible for people. And C, in doing so, you can run it much more efficiently. Is that a fair sort of summary you, of your career? You, you nailed it. Perfect. When I was researching this podcast, I was sort of blown away, if I can say, by the level of activity you've got through and level of significant activity. And I think lots of people would be interested. Do you work in a way that's radically different to most people? Because it is worth saying there are some people, it seems, with this almost sort of out of this world level of productivity, hours worked, engagement. And then there seems to be a gap and sort of everyone else appears to be sort of trailing in the wake of that. I'm interested, what is it do you think that has motivated you or what makes you get through as much as you do? Well, that's very kind. I, I guess what I would uh, explain it by is that I'm an information junkie. And so, you know, all my life, I've always read a lot and I'm always looking to, you know, uh, access and uh, assimilate information. So, you know, it's just like with the pandemic, you know, I'm, I know infectious disease specialist or epidemiologist, virologist, immunologist, or vaccinologist. But, you know, basically I read everything I possibly can to help translate that. And, you know, I, I find it, I'm curious. I'm very, I'm hyper curious. So, uh, you know, that's probably the, it, it almost to a point, probably if you ask my wife, you should say, you know, a lunatic, right? But um, that's the, probably the feature. I, I also, you know, not just love reading, um, the topic of the moment, like COVID-19, but, you know, books and, you know, anything I can get my hands on. I just, one endowed lucky feature is, you know, I can read very fast. And so I can take, because I've had a lot of practice, I, I can, I can, you know, ingest 
so people have joked that I'm an AI agent. Um, you know, I, I go along with the joke, but look, I, I just think that we, we can always read more, learn more. I mean, I'm the, I, the, my humility is that I have so much more to learn and uh, there aren't enough hours in the day to do that. Yeah, it's such, it's such an interesting answer. Um, there's sort of a spontaneous curiosity, which I guess is a prerequisite um, for getting through so much activity, but also taking in so much information. Are there any areas of research that you would have liked to have gone down had you more time or funding? Not really. I mean, I think I've been lucky. I've been really lucky. You know, I had three jobs in my career. One was the University of Michigan for seven years and like 14 years at Cleveland Clinic and, and now 14 years here. Um, you know, I, I feel each time I was able to be able to do what I thought I could do. That's, that was a gift that I could follow a dream, if you will, of pursuit. So I, 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 I'm, I'm really indebted that I've been able to do that and inspire others to work with me, develop teams and, you know, pursue things. You can always do more, you can always do better, but at least we got into the topics and the fields that I thought were really interesting. Now it's AI is the primary interest. And I, I am really more excited about that than anything that's come before. Um, so I think that, you know, that and obviously the whole genome editing field is exciting as could be. We've got more powerful tools than we've ever seen in, in life science and in medicine. And so we'll just keep working on that. And I just wish I could go take, you know, grab a couple of decades of youth back and more energy and and uh, more, uh, you know, time ahead, that would be the one thing I'd ask for. Dr. Topol, this has been genuinely fascinating. Thank you for your time and thank you for your sort of dedication to democratizing medicine and sort of thirst for public service. And thank you so much for being here. Oh, I enjoyed it, Jamie. Thanks for your kindness and uh, support. And uh, I really appreciate the chance to have this conversation with you.